0: Section twenty of the South Pole. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The South Pole by Roald Amundsen. Translation by A. G. Carter. Section twenty. Volume one, Chapter nine. The end of the winter. Part two. On August sixteenth, we began to pack our sledges two were placed in the crystal palace and two in the clothing store it was a great advantage to be able to do this work on the cover. at this time the temperature was dancing a can-can between minus fifty eight degrees and minus seventy five degrees fahrenheit with an occasional refreshing breeze of thirteen or fourteen miles an hour it would have been almost an impossibility to pack the sledges out of doors under these conditions if it was to be done carefully and firmly and of course it had to be so done Our fixed wire-rope lashings had to be laced together with lengths of thin rope, and this took time, but when properly done, as it was now, the cases were held as though in a vice, and could not move. The zinc plates we had had under the sledges to keep them up in loose snow had been taken off. We could not see that we should have any use for them. In their place we had lashed a spare ski under each sledge, and these were very useful later. By August 22nd all the sledges were ready, waiting to be driven away. The dogs did not like the cold weather we had now had for so long. When the temperature went down between minus 58 degrees and minus 75 degrees Fahrenheit, one could see by their movements that they felt it. They stood still and raised their feet from the ground in turn, holding each foot up for a while before putting it down again on the cold surface. They were cunning and resourceful in the extreme. They did not care very much for fish, and some of them were difficult to get into the tents on the evenings when they knew there was fish. Stuberut, especially, had a great deal of trouble with one of the young dogs. Funcho was his name. He was born at Madeira during our stay there in September 1910. On meat evenings, each man, after fastening up his dogs, went, as has been described, up to the wall of the meat tent and took his box of chopped up meat, which was put out there. Funcho used to watch for this moment. When he saw Stubert take the box, he knew there was meat, and then he came quietly into the tent, as though there was nothing the matter. If, on the other hand, Stubberud showed no signs of fetching the box, the dog would not come, nor was it possible to get hold of him. This happened a few times, but then Stubberud hit upon a stratagem. When Funcho, as usual, even on a fish evening, watched the scene of chaining up the other dogs from a distance, Stubberud went calmly up to the wall, took the empty box that lay there, put it on his shoulder, and returned to the tent. Funcho was taken in. He hurried joyfully into the tent delighted no doubt with stubberud's generosity in providing meat two evenings running but there to his great surprise a very different reception awaited him from that he expected he was seized by the neck and made fast for the night after an ugly scowl at the empty box he looked at stubberud what he thought i am not sure certain it is that the ruse was not often successful after that funcho got a dried fish for supper and had to be content with it we did not lose many dogs in the course of the winter two Jeppa and jacob died of some disease or other knachten was shot as he lost almost all his hair over half his body Madero, born at madeira disappeared early in the autumn tom disappeared later both these undoubtedly fell into crevasses we had a very good opportunity twice of seeing how this might happen both times we saw the dog disappear into the crevasse and could watch him from the surface He went quite quietly, backwards and forwards, down below, without uttering a sound. These crevasses were not deep, but they were steep-sided, so that the dog could not get out without help. The two dogs I have mentioned undoubtedly met their death in this way. A slow death, it must be, when one remembers how tenacious of life a dog is. It happened several times that dogs disappeared, were absent for some days, and then came back. Possibly they had been down a crevasse, and had finally succeeded in getting out of it again. Curiously enough, they did not pay much attention to the weather when they went on trips of this kind. When the humor took them, they would disappear, even if the temperature was down in the fifties below zero, with wind and driving snow. Thus, Ja'ala, a lady belonging to Bialand, took it into her head to go off with three attendant cavaliers. We came upon them later, they were then lying quietly behind a hummock down on the ice, and seemed to be quite happy." They had been away for about eight days without food, and during that time the temperature had seldom been above minus 58 degrees Fahrenheit. August 23rd arrived. Calm, partly overcast, and minus 43.6 degrees Fahrenheit. Finer weather for taking out our sledges and driving them over to the starting point could not be imagined. They had to be brought up through the door of the clothing store. It was the largest and the easiest to get through. We had first to dig away the snow which Leslie had been allowed to collect there, as the inmates of this department had for some time past used the inner passage. The snow had blotted out everything, so that no sign of the entrance could be seen, but with a couple of strong shovels and a couple of strong men to use them, the opening was soon laid bare. To get the sledges up was a longer business. They weighed 880 pounds apiece, and the way up to the surface was steep. A tackle was rigged, and by hauling and shoving they slowly, one by one, came up into daylight. We dragged them away to a place near the instrument screen, so as to get a clear start away from the house. The dogs were fresh and wild, and wanted plenty of room. A case, not to mention a post, still less the instrument screen, would all have been objects of extreme interest, to which, if there had been the slightest opportunity, their course would infallibly have been directed. The protests of their drivers would have been of little avail. The dogs had not been let loose that morning, and every man was now in his tent harnessing them. Meanwhile I stood contemplating the packed sledges that stood there ready to begin the long journey. I tried to work up a little poetry. The ever-restless spirit of man, the mysterious, awe-inspiring wilderness of ice. But it was no good. I suppose it was too early in the morning." I abandoned my efforts, after coming to the conclusion that each sledge gave one more the idea of a coffin than of anything else, all the cases being painted black. It was as we had expected. The dogs were on the verge of exploding. What a time we had getting them all into the traces. They could not stand still an instant. Either it was a friend they wanted to wish good morning, or it was an enemy they were longing to fly at. There was always something going on. When they kicked out with their hind legs, raising a cloud of snow, or glared defiantly at each other, it often caused their driver an anxious moment. If he had his eye on them at this stage, he might, by intervening quickly and firmly, prevent the impending battle. But one cannot be everywhere at once, and the result was a series of the wildest fights. Strange beasts! They had been going about the place comparatively peacefully the whole winter, and now, as soon as they were in harness, they must needs fight as if their lives depended on it. At last we were all ready and away. It was the first time we had driven with teams of twelve, so that we were anxious to see the result. It went better than we had expected. Of course, not like an express train, but we could not expect that the first time. Some of the dogs had grown too fat in the course of the winter, and had difficulty in keeping up. For them this first trip was a stiff pull. But most of them were in excellent condition. Fine, rounded bodies, not lumpish. It did not take long to get up the hill this time. Most of them had to stop and get their wind on the slope, but there were some that did it without a halt. Up by the top everything looked just as we had left it in April. The flag was still standing where we had planted it, and did not look much the worse for wear. And, what was still stranger, we could see our old tracks southward. We drove all our sledges well up, unharnessed the dogs, and let them go. We took it for granted that they would all rush joyfully home to the flesh-pots, nor did the greater number disappoint us. They set off gaily homewards, and soon the ice was strewn with dogs. They did not behave altogether like good children. In some places there was a sort of mist over the ice. This was the cloud of snow thrown up by the combatants. But on their return they were irreproachable. One could not take any notice of a halt here and there. At the inspection that evening it appeared that ten of them were missing— That was strange. Could all ten have gone down crevasses? It seemed unlikely. Next morning, two men went over to the starting point to look for the missing dogs. On the way, they crossed a couple of crevasses, but there was no dog to be seen. When they arrived at the place where the sledges stood, there lay all ten curled up asleep. They were lying by their own sledges and did not seem to take the slightest notice of the men's arrival. One or two of them may have opened an eye, but that was all. When they were roused and given to understand by unmistakable signs that their presence was desired at home, they seemed astonished beyond all bounds. Some of them simply declined to believe it. They merely turned round a few times and lay down again on the same spot. They had to be flogged home. Can anything more inexplicable be imagined? There they lay, three miles from their comfortable home, where they knew that abundance of food awaited them, in a temperature of minus forty degrees Fahrenheit although they had now been out for twenty-four hours none of them gave a sign of wanting to leave the spot if it had been summer with warm sunshine one might have understood it but as it was no that day august twenty fourth the sun appeared above the barrier again for the first time in four months he looked very smiling with a friendly nod for the old pressure ridges he had seen for so many years but when his first beams reached the starting point his face might well show surprise. Well, if they're not first after all, and I've been doing all I could to get there. It could not be denied we had won the race and reached the barrier a day before him. The day for our actual start could not be fixed. We should have to wait until the temperature moderated somewhat. So long as it continued to grovel in the depths we could not think of setting out all our things were now ready up on the barrier and nothing remained but to harness the dogs and start when i say all our things were ready this is not the impression any one would have gained who looked in on us the cutting out and sewing were going on worse than ever what had previously occurred to one as a thing of secondary importance which might be done if there was time but might otherwise quite well be dropped now suddenly appeared as the most important part of the whole outfit and then out came the knife and cut away, until great heaps of offcuts and hair lay about the floor. Then the needle was produced, and seam after seam added to those there were already. The days went by, and the temperature would give no sign of spring. Now and then it would make a jump of about thirty degrees, but only to sink just as rapidly back to minus fifty-eight degrees Fahrenheit. It is not at all pleasant to hang about waiting like this, I always have the idea that I am the only one who is left behind, while all the others are out on the road, and I could guess that I was not the only one of us who felt this. I'd give something to know how far Scott to today. Oh, he's not out yet, bless you. It's much too cold for his ponies. Ah, but how do you know they have it as cold as this? I expect it's far warmer where they are, among the mountains, and you can take your oath they're not lying idle. Those boys have shown what they can do. This was the sort of conversation one could hear daily. The uncertainty was worrying many of us, not all, and personally I felt it a great deal. I was determined to get away as soon as it was at all possible, and the objection that much might be lost by starting too early did not seem to me to have much force. If we saw that it was too cold, all we had to do was to turn back, so that I could not see there was any risk. September came, with minus forty-three point six degrees Fahrenheit. That is a temperature that one can always stand, but we had better wait and see what it is going to do. Perhaps it will only play its old tricks again. Next day, minus 63.4 degrees Fahrenheit, calm and clear. September 6th, minus 20.2 degrees Fahrenheit. At last the change had come, and we thought it was high time. Next day, minus 7.6 degrees Fahrenheit. The little slant of wind that came from the east felt quite like a mild spring breeze. Well, at any rate, we now had a good temperature to start in. Every man ready. Tomorrow we are off. September 8 arrived. We turned out as usual, had breakfast, and were then on the move. We had not much to do. The empty sledges we were to use for driving up to the starting point were ready. We only had to throw a few things onto them. "'But it turned out that the mere fact of having so few things was the cause of its taking a long time. We were to harness twelve dogs to the empty sledges, and we had an idea that it would cost us a struggle to get away. We helped each other, two and two, to bring the dogs to the sledges and harness them. Those who were really careful had anchored their sledges to a peg firmly fixed in the snow. Others had contented themselves with capsizing their sledges, and others again were even more reckless.' We all had to be ready before the first man could start, otherwise it would have been impossible for those who were behind to hold in their dogs, and the result would have been a false start. Our dogs were in a fearful state of excitement and confusion that morning, but at last everything was ready, barring one or two trifles. Then I suddenly heard a wild yell, and, spinning round, I saw a team tearing off without a driver, the next driver rushed forward to help, with the result that his dogs made off after the others. The two sledges were on ahead, and the two drivers after them in full gallop, but the odds were too unequal. In a few moments the drivers were beaten. The two runaway teams had made off in a south-westerly direction, and were going like the wind. The men had hard work. They had long ago stopped running, and were now following in the tracks of the sledges. The dogs had disappeared behind the ridges, which the men did not reach till much later meanwhile the rest of us waited the question was what would those two do when at last they had come up with their sledges would they turn and go home or would they drive up to the starting point waiting was no fun under any circumstances and so we decided to go on to the starting point and if necessary wait there no sooner said than done and away we went now we should see what command the fellows had over their dogs for in all canine probability these teams would now try to follow the same course that the runaways had taken. This fear turned out not to be groundless. Three managed to turn their dogs and put them in the right direction, but the other two were off on a new course. Afterwards, of course, they tried to make out that they thought we were all going that way. I smiled, but said nothing. It had happened more than once that my own dogs had taken charge. No doubt I had felt rather foolish at the time, but after all, it was not till noon that we were all assembled with our sledges. The drivers of the runaways had had stiff work to catch them, and were wet through with their exertions. I had some thoughts of turning back, as three young puppies had followed us. If we went on, we should have to shoot them. But to turn back after all this work, and then probably have the same thing over again next morning, was not a pleasant prospect. And, above all, to see Lindstrom standing at the door, shaking with laughter. No, we would better go on. I think we were all agreed in this. The dogs were now harnessed to the loaded sledges, and the empty ones were stacked one above another. At one thirty p.m. we were off. The old tracks were soon lost sight of, but we immediately picked up the line of flags that had been set up at every second kilometre on the last depot journey. The going was splendid, and we went at a rattling pace to the south. We did not go very far the first day, eleven and three-quarter miles, and pitched our camp at 3.30 p.m., The first night out is never very pleasant, but this time it was awful. There was such a row going on among our ninety dogs that we could not close our eyes. It was a blessed relief when four in the morning came around and we could begin to get up. We had to shoot the three puppies when we stopped for lunch that day. The going was the same. Nothing could be better. The flags we were following stood just as we had left them. They showed no trace of there having been any snowfall in the interval. That day we did fifteen and a half miles. The dogs were not yet in training, but were picking up every hour. By the tenth they seemed to have reached their full vigour. That day none of us could hold in his team. They all wanted to get forward, with the result that one team ran into another, and confusion followed. This was a tiresome business. The dogs wore themselves out to no purpose, and, of course, the time spent in extricating them from one another was lost. They were perfectly wild that day when lassessen for instance caught sight of his enemy hans who was in another team he immediately encouraged his friend fix to help him these two then put on all the speed they could with the result that the others in the same team were excited by the sudden acceleration and joined in the spurt it made no difference how the driver tried to stop them they went on just as furiously until they reached the team that included the object of lassessen's and fix's endeavours then the two teams dashed into each other and we had ninety-six dogs' legs to sort out. The only thing that could be done was to let those who could not hold in their teams unharness some of the dogs and tie them on the sledge. In this way we got things to work satisfactorily at last. We covered eighteen and a half miles that day. On Monday the 11th we woke up to a temperature of minus 67.9 degrees Fahrenheit. The weather was splendid, calm, and clear. We could see by the dogs that they were not feeling happy, as they had kept comparatively quiet that night. The cold affected the going at once. It was slow and unyielding. We came across some crevasses, and Hans's sledge was nearly in one, but it was held up, and he came out of it without serious consequences. The cold caused no discomfort on the march. On the contrary, at times it was too warm. One's breath was like a cloud, and so thick was the vapour over the dogs that one could not see one team from the next though the sledges were being driven close to one another. On the twelfth it was minus 61.6 degrees Fahrenheit, with the breeze dead against us. This was undeniably bitter. It was easy to see that the temperature was too much for the dogs. In the morning especially they were a pitiful sight. They lay rolled up as tightly as possible, with their noses under their tails, and from time to time one could see a shiver run through their bodies. Indeed, some of them were constantly shivering. We had to lift them up and put them into their harness. I had to admit that with this temperature it would not pay to go on. The risk was too great. We therefore decided to drive on to the depot in eighty degrees south and unload our sledges there. On that day, too, we made the awkward discovery that the fluid in our compasses had frozen, rendering them useless. The weather had become very thick, and we could only guess vaguely the position of the sun. Our progress under these circumstances was very doubtful. Possibly we were on the right course, but it was just as probable, nay, more so, that we were off it. The best thing we could do, therefore, was to pitch our camp and wait for a better state of things. We did not bless the instrument maker who had supplied those compasses. It was ten a.m. when we stopped. In order to have a good shelter for the long day before us, we decided to build two snow-huts. The snow was not good for this purpose, but by fetching blocks from all sides we managed to put up the huts. Hansen built one and Wisting the other. In a temperature such as we now had, a snow-hut is greatly preferable to a tent, and we felt quite comfortable when we came in and got the primers going. That night we heard a strange noise round us. I looked under my bag to see whether we had far to drop, but there was no sign of a disturbance anywhere. In the other hut they had heard nothing. We afterwards discovered that the sound was only due to snow settling. By this expression I mean the movement that takes place when a large extent of the snow surface breaks and sinks, settles down. This movement gives one the idea that the ground is sinking under one, and it is not a pleasant feeling." It is followed by a dull roar which often makes the dogs jump into the air, and their drivers too, for that matter. Once we heard this booming on the plateau so loud that it seemed like the thunder of cannon. We soon grew accustomed to it. Next day the temperature was minus 62.5 degrees Fahrenheit, calm and perfectly clear. We did eighteen and a half miles and kept our course as well as we could with the help of the sun. It was minus 69.3 degrees Fahrenheit when we camped. This time I had done a thing that I have always been opposed to. I had brought spirits with me in the form of a bottle of Norwegian aquavit and a bottle of gin. I thought this a suitable occasion to bring in the gin. It was as hard as flint right through. While we were thawing it, the bottle burst, and we threw it out into the snow, with the result that all the dogs started to sneeze. The next bottle aquavit number one was like a bone but we had learned wisdom by experience and we succeeded with care in thawing it out we waited till we were all in our bags and then we had one i was greatly disappointed it was not half so good as i had thought but i am glad i tried it as i shall never do so again the effect was nil i felt nothing either in my head or my feet the fourteenth was cool the temperature remained at minus sixty eight point eight degrees fahrenheit fortunately it was clear so that we could see where we were going we had not gone far before a bright projection appeared on the level surface out with the glasses the depot there it lay right in our course hansen who had driven first the whole way without a forerunner and for the most part without a compass had no need to be ashamed of his performance We agreed that it was well done, and that, no doubt, was all the thanks he got. We reached it at 10.15 a.m. and unloaded our sledges at once. Whisting undertook the far from pleasant task of getting us a cup of warm milk at minus 68.8 degrees Fahrenheit. He put the primus behind one of the cases of provisions and set it going. Strangely enough, the paraffin was still liquid in the vessel, but this was no doubt because it had been well protected in the case, a cup of horlick's malted milk tasted better that day than the last time i had tried it in a restaurant in chicago having enjoyed that we threw ourselves on the almost empty sledges and set our course for home the going was difficult but with the light weight they now had to pull the dogs went along well i sat with whisting as i considered his team the strongest the cold held on unchanged and i was often surprised that it was possible to sit still on the sledges as we did without freezing but we got on quite well. One or two I saw off their sledges all day, and most of us jumped off from time to time and ran by the side to get warm. I myself took to my ski and let myself be pulled along. This so-called sport has never appealed to me, but under the circumstances it was permissible. It warmed my feet, and that was the object of it. I again had recourse to this sport of ski-driving later on, but that was for another reason.' On the fifteenth, as we sat in the tent cooking and chatting, Hansen suddenly said, "'Why, I believe my heel's gone!' Off came his stockings, and there was a big, dead heel, like a lump of tallow. It did not look well. He rubbed it until he thought he could feel something again, and then put his feet back in his stockings and got into his bag. Now it was Stuberud's turn. "'Blessed if I don't think there's something wrong with mine, too!' "'Same proceeding, same result.' This was pleasant. Two doubtful heels and forty-six miles from Framheim. When we started next morning it was fortunately milder. Almost summer. Minus forty degrees Fahrenheit. It felt quite pleasant. The difference between minus forty degrees and minus sixty degrees is, in my opinion, very perceptible. It may perhaps be thought that when one gets so far down a few degrees one way or the other do not make any difference, but they do. While driving that day we were obliged to let loose several of the dogs who could not keep up. We supposed that they would follow our tracks. Adam and Lazarus were never seen again. Sarah fell dead on the way without any previous symptom. Camilla was also among those let loose. On the way home we kept the same order as on the previous days. Hansen and Wisting as a rule were a long way ahead unless they stopped and waited. We went at a tearing pace we thought of halting at the sixteen-mile flag, as we called it, the mark at thirty kilometres from Framheim, and waiting for the others to come up. But as the weather was of the best, calm and clear, and with our tracks on the way south perfectly plain, I decided to go on. The sooner we got the bad heels into the house, the better. The two first sledges arrived at four p.m., the next at six, and the two following ones at six-thirty. The last did not come in till twelve-thirty a.m., heaven knows what they have been doing on the way with the low temperatures we experienced on this trip we noticed a curious snow formation that i had never seen before fine extremely fine drift snow collected and formed small cylindrical bodies of an average diameter of one and a quarter inches and about the same height they were however of various sizes They generally rolled over the surface like a wheel, and now and then collected into large heaps, from which again, one by one, or several together, they continued their rolling. If you took one of these bodies in the hand, there was no increase of weight to be felt, not the very slightest. If you took one of the largest and crushed it, there was, so to speak, nothing left. With the temperature in the minus-forties, we did not see them. As soon as we came home, we attended to the heels. Pristrad had both his heels frozen, one slightly, the other more severely, though, so far as I could determine, not so badly as the other two. The first thing we did was to lance the big blisters that had formed, and let out the fluid they contained. Afterwards we put on boracic compresses, night and morning. We kept up this treatment for a long time. At last the old skin could be removed, and the new lay there fresh and healthy. The heel was cured circumstances had arisen which made me consider it necessary to divide the party into two one party was to carry out the march through the south the other was to try to reach king edward the seventh land and see what was to be done there besides exploring the region around the bay of wales this party was composed of preistrut Stubberud, and johansen under the leadership of the first named the advantages of this new arrangement were many in the first place a smaller party could advance more rapidly than a larger one Our numbers, both of men and dogs, on several of the previous trips had clearly shown the arrangement to be unfortunate. The time we took to get ready in the morning, four hours, was one of the consequences of being a large party. With half the number, or only one tentful, I hoped to be able to reduce this time by half. The importance of the depots we had laid down was, of course, greatly increased, since they would now only have to support five members of the party originally contemplated, and would thus be able to furnish them with supplies for so much more time. From a purely scientific point of view, the change offered such obvious advantages that it is unnecessary to insist upon them. Henceforward, therefore, we worked, so to speak, in two parties. The polar party was to leave as soon as spring came in earnest. I left it to Preistrit himself to fix the departure of the party he was to lead. There was no such hurry for them. They could take things more easily. Then the same old fuss about the outfit began all over again, and the needles were busy the whole time. Two days after our return, Wisting and Bjarland went out to the thirty-kilometre mark, with the object of bringing in the dogs that had been let loose on that part of the route and had not yet returned. They made the trip of sixty kilometres, thirty-seven and a half miles, in six hours, and brought all the stragglers, ten of them, back with them. The farthest of them were found lying by the flag. None of them showed a sign of getting up when the sledges came. They had to be picked up and harnessed, and one or two that had sore feet were driven on the sledges. In all probability most of them would have returned in a few days, but it is incomprehensible that healthy, plucky dogs, as many of them were, should take it into their heads to stay behind like that. On September 24th we had the first tidings of spring, when Bialand came back from the ice and told us he had shot a seal. So the seals had begun to come up onto the ice. This was a good sign. The next day we went out to bring it in, and we got another at the same time. There was excitement among the dogs when they got fresh meat, to say nothing of fresh blubber. Nor were we men inclined to say no to a fresh steak. On September 27th we removed the roof that had covered over the window of our room. We had to carry the light down through a long wooden channel so that it was considerably reduced by the time it came in. But it was light genuine daylight, and it was much appreciated. On the 26th Camilla came back, after an absence of ten days. She had been let loose sixty-eight miles from Framheim on the last trip. When she came in she was as fat as ever. Probably she had been feasting in her solitude on one of her comrades. She was received with great ovations by her many admirers. On September twenty-ninth, a still more certain sign of spring appeared a flight of Antarctic petrels. They came flying up to us to bring the news that now spring had come, this time in earnest. We were delighted to see these fine, swift birds again. They flew round the house several times to see whether we were all there still, and we were not long in going out to receive them. It was amusing to watch the dogs. At first the birds flew pretty near the ground. When the dogs caught sight of them, they rushed out, the whole lot of them, to catch them. They tore along, scouring the ground, and of course all wanted to be first. Then the birds suddenly rose into the air, and presently the dogs lost sight of them. They stood still for a moment, glaring at each other, evidently uncertain of what was the best thing to do. Such uncertainty does not as a rule last long. They made up their minds with all desirable promptitude, and flew at each other's throats. So now spring had really arrived. We would only to cure the frost-bitten heels and then away. End of section twenty. End of volume one, chapter nine, the end of the winter. End of volume one.